about, we're going to talk about, you know, we've been doing the life of Jesus. And ironically, I think this part of the class will be considered the life of Jesus. But we're also going to include the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to talk about historical circumstances of the death of Jesus. I'm going to give you some dates. Probably the death of Jesus takes place in 33 AD. Uh, depending on when Jesus' ministry began. So if he began his ministry in 27 AD, how do, we, how do we time how long Jesus ministered? We time it by how many Passovers took place during his ministry. So if you look at the Gospel of John, you see that he has three Passovers between when he calls the disciples and when he dies. And so if he began in 27 AD, then he died in 33 AD. If he began in 30 AD, then he died in 33 AD. This is the easiest math. Whatever it is, plus three. That's the, the ministry of Jesus. Not a long ministry, but very fruitful, obviously. Um, how, what are the circumstances of his death? So he goes to Jerusalem. Uh, he has a confrontation with the Jewish leaders. He is telling his disciples all the way that I'm going to die. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to be put to death. Even as he says it, it doesn't compute, does not register in their brains that he's about to die. Uh, also doesn't register in their brains that he keeps saying to them that I'm going to rise again. So he is executed. He's executed by the Romans on the accusation of rebellion against the government. The Romans have to be the ones to do the execution because the Jewish authorities don't have the authority to execute anybody. Um, this is something they would love to have back, right? They would love to have the authority to execute people on their own back, but they don't. The Roman government has a monopoly on death, and they're happy to do it, and they do it an awful lot. So they bring Jesus before, the, um, the, before Pilate, and here's the charge. You see it in Luke 23, 2. So why was Jesus executed? Here it is. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. So you see right there this political element to it, right? It's not just that we have a theological issue with this guy. It's that he's causing chaos, right? He's, anarchy goes wherever this guy goes. He opposes paying taxes. That'll really get the government excited if you say somebody does that. Um, and then he claims to be a king, right? So this guy is a threat to Caesar. This guy uh, sees himself as a usurper of the king of, of, of the empire. And so it says he stirs people all over Judah by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. What's the argument? The argument is this isn't just some weird guy in the backwoods. He's actually spreading to us, right? You can see that he's actually having an impact. He, he's not, this is not empty fears about a nobody. So they're arguing this guy's not a nobody. Uh, and this is the charge on which he ends up being executed. This ends up being what is said that gets him killed. So Pilate... Pilate is the, uh, is the uh, ruler in the region. He's the one who's supposed to oversee this. Pilate is warned by his wife in a dream. She says, let Jesus go. It, it's interesting. I want to know more about this whole situation. I want to know more about his wife. I want to know more about what's going on there. And you just hear nothing else. Um, Pilate is not concerned with truth. He is not concerned with justice. He is concerned with keeping power. And he is uh, concerned with stability. That's what empires are concerned about. They are not concerned about freedom of the individual. They are concerned about stability. What's going to keep this wagon train a-moving? 
Uh, he loathed the Jewish leaders. He didn't like them. He didn't respect them, but he did fear them. He was afraid of angering them because if there's an uprising in Jerusalem and he is seen to be the cause, then he thinks he's going to be removed. And who knows, maybe he'll get to sent, sent to some worse backwater place than just Jerusalem. And so what happens? Letting Jesus free would have rocked the boat. He decides that letting Jesus out is going to cause more trouble than keeping Jesus. And so he keeps Jesus and he crucifies him just like the crowd is demanding. Uh, He is crucified as king of the Jews. Um, Again, remember, the Romans choose the Jewish rulers. The Jewish people don't get to choose their rulers. So that's sort of the idea here is, oh, this guy's the king of the Jews. Well, here they can have their king of the Jews. Uh, I'll appoint you and show you exactly what happens to somebody who's your king. You know, it's sort of a way of giving them what they want and at the same time poking his finger in their eye, right? Okay, I'm going to give you what you want, but just so you know, I'm really the one who's in charge around here. Jesus is executed between two criminals. He doesn't get a special execution. He's executed with the other rabble at a time when executions were regularly taking place, right? This is not a specially staged crucifixion. When I was a kid, I used to think of the crucifixion as something very special. Uh, The church that I was part of would put on a passion play each year. They would go out into the countryside in Kansas. And they would go out into like this this big, beautiful hillside. And they would put on a passion play every year. And it was always such a huge production. It was such a huge deal. And I thought, well, you know, it must have been something like that for the Romans to execute Jesus. No, no, it's not like that at all. I mean, it's just... Brutal and gross and icky and bloody. And they do this all the time. And they use fear as their way of keeping people under control. That's what it is. So um, that's what happens. He is executed. And before we talk about the death of Jesus, or actually having talked about the historical situation of the death of Jesus, I want to mention a few things that Jesus does before he's executed. He gives them a way of thinking about his death. He wants them to understand the significance of it. So... There's a specific moment uh, where he institutes the Lord's Supper. He's sitting, uh, having a Passover meal the night before he's betrayed. And uh, they sit down and they have the Passover. The Passover is something the Jewish people celebrate every year. It happens. I'm going to say it just so happens, but you know nothing just so happens when it comes to Jesus. It just so happens that this is the night of the Passover. The night of the the Passover is a meal where they sit down and they remember that God rescued Israel out of the slavery of Egypt. And Jesus takes this meal and he speaks and he applies this meal to himself. And he says, this meal is about me. God saved you, saved you from Egypt. And look what he's doing now. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to take my death and he's going to deliver you. And so he institutes the Lord's Supper. Um. And so just read a few just to give you an idea. I think you'll recognize these words, actually. Um, He took the bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. I like how he personalizes this. This is not he's not broad with it. He's he's personal with it. This is given for you. He's looking at each of these men around the table and he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me when you do this. Um, There is a memorial aspect to the supper where you are supposed to mentally engage and do something here. And specifically the thing he says you are supposed to do is remember me. Remember me when you have this meal. 
And then he passes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so this idea of there being a new covenant is something Jesus takes and he applies it to himself. So he takes wording, for example, from, I'm going from memory, it's not in my notes. I think it's Jeremiah 33, where Jeremiah talks about the new covenant that's going to be written on the heart. And he takes that and he says, this is being fulfilled for you. If you will just keep your eyes open tonight and watch everything that's going to happen. And so then he also says something else in Mark 10:45 that casts some illumination upon what Jesus is doing. Hey, Adam. Yeah. He says this cup, what, what's in the cup? You know wine's in that cup, Micah. You're just being a rascal. <laughs> <laughs> There's not Welch's. It did not exist. <laughs> you like how snappy I am with them? Just because that's where we are at now. <laughs> I think we said wine like twice in the liturgy today and I had multiple people at the door like, huh, what was in those cups? Yes, it was grape juice. So <laughs> they, they had two cups of wine at the supper, right? They had multiple cups of wine. That's what they drank. That's, there's just no getting around it. So why would you want to get around that? Uh, I think in the American church, would you just want me to talk about wine in the supper? <laughs> so I think that the American church during the time, time of prohibition became very uncomfortable with having wine in the supper. And a lot of Americans got very accustomed to having grape juice once Welch's was invented. I mean, literally it was Welch's who invented it. And a lot of Americans never looked back. So it's really hard to condition Americans to have wine in the supper like they've had for 1900 years. So, John was chastised in <clears throat> several of our churches in Phoenix that we attended because he would not give up beer. Yeah. Because Germans said their beer are not to be separate. Oh, yeah. What would I, how would I repeat that? Uh, John ran into. Uh, prohibition style uh, Christianity in Phoenix is what you're saying. Yeah. So there is a, and there's a, there's a strong, uh, there's a strong strain of that still in the American church where there's just, you know, even still people think that alcohol is really bad or there's extreme sensitivity and care for people who have a background with alcohol. And there's a fear that if you drink a little bit, it's going to send you off the rails. You don't want to be responsible for ruining someone's life. So, Hey, let's just have grape juice. And Jesus probably didn't know alcohol was going to be a problem in the 21st century. Yes, Jesus did not know that alcohol. Well, did Jesus know? Asking what Jesus knew about the 21st century is a tricky question. Um, the really ones that are still pushing it, and the swear that it gets grape juice, and it's all in the it's all in the interpretation issue. Is the Independent Baptist Church? Yeah, I I worked for an independent uh, fundamentalist. Um, Baptist who was very insistent that Jesus made grape juice and he said that and his argument was because he said that this is the best right that's what the man at the ceremony said right Jesus makes the wine and the wine that Jesus makes at the Lord's Supper was grape juice and the reason why was because that is best and I I actually pointed him to the old test to the text where Jesus literally says the old wine is better and uh, I don't remember how the conversation went after that (laughs) <laughs> but I do remember he didn't change his mind. Neil, you're not that 
that's a humbug argument um, because the biblical is very clear that it's comments like well this time of the day is they weren't in their cups yet. Also, in the Old Testament, you have a uh, some of your money aside to start drink party. Essentially, hey, you don't have to convince me, John. So, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you did this. You. Yeah, John. Uh, temperance was the majority position in the Presbyterian Church in the 1930s. Yeah. Act. It's one yeah. of the charges the liberals brought against the Russian major. Yeah. So, I mean, we have to accept our ancestors' view temper is extremely important. Yeah, yeah. And and also, like, the uh, it, when the OPC, the OPC originally formed and then it split into the Bible Presbyterian Church, specifically on the issue of alcohol, right? So the Bible Presbyterians were like, we're going to be an abstinence denomination, and they basically founded their their denomination on abstinence from alcohol. Um, and those were both, those were basically the majority groups that split out from, from the, uh, the Northern Presbyterian Church. Why not offer either one? That, I'll tell you why, I can tell you why Evergreen doesn't offer both. They don't offer both because they think everyone should be partaking of the same substance rather than having two different substances. So I think I feel safe saying that that's the reason why right now. But who knows? We'll let. Uh... Yeah. Back to the life of Jesus. Yeah, back to the life of Jesus. <laughs> um, so, so these are the ways that Jesus is, is giving an interpretation of his death. I will mention, although I'm not going to dwell on it because I want to move specifically to the resurrection. Um, Jesus also talks about his life being, uh, so he talks about himself being a, ra- a ransom. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give a, his life as a ransom for many. So um, if you ransom, you give someone's, you save someone's life from trouble. You save someone's life from danger. And that's what Jesus interprets his own death as. He says, I know that when I die, I'm going to be ransoming other people. I'm going to be saving other people. I'm going to be rescuing other people's souls. And so he, he dies with this sense that he knows that his death is meaningful and he knows that something very good is coming from it and that what lies ahead is worth it. Um, you could imagine if he didn't view it that way, he just thinks, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Um, you know, a woman giving birth is very difficult. Um, I had a friend, and I hope none of this isn't traumatic for any of you for me to mention this, but we had a friend who's, who gave birth to a child who she had to carry to full term, even though the child had died. And it was an awful experience for her, essentially knowing that she was giving birth for a child that wasn't alive. And flip the, flip the script. You've got a, a woman who's giving birth to a child, and this child is kicking. This child is alive. And she knows whatever pain lies ahead, it's absolutely worth it. That's, what, that's how I have to think in some ways. I think Jesus maybe understands that sense of purpose, this, this sense that whatever's about to happen is going to be painful and difficult, but it's going to be worth it. Why? Because he knows he's giving his life as a ransom for many, because he knows from Isaiah 53, which he would have memorized, he knows that his life is going to be an atonement, that he's going to be bringing people peace with God through his death. And so all of these things just pile on to give this absolute peace in the midst of Terrible suffering. For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. He knows 
what he's doing. He knows why he's doing it. He knows who he's doing it for. He loves his people. And so he's doing this for them. And so that gives meaning to what he's doing. So don't, when you think of the death of Jesus, don't think of some guy just in the backwater corner of, of the Jewish empire or the, the Roman empire dying some meaningless death. It's the flip opposite. It is this guy in the middle of nowhere suffering on a tree for God's people. And he's loving them. Well, and while he was on the cross, he was able to tell the, the thief that he'll be with me in paradise, <clears throat> demonstrating his, you know, his peace with what was happening next. To be able to say that in the midst of death, that was mm-hmm. always really powerful for me. Yeah, I mean, even as it's going on, he knows what's happening. He knows what's going to happen for this guy right next to him. He's put his faith in him, right? It's just extraordinary. Um, this deserves just lots of... Uh, attention, but instead we'll come back to it because we're going to go through the whole New Testament in terms of giving an overview. But I want to talk specifically about what comes next. So he dies. Uh, uh, he dies. His body is laid in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. The gospel narratives uh, specifically show witnesses to where he gets laid. They want us to know they are not ignorant of where his body is put. And so in the gospel narrative you have, and in the book of Acts, it records the appearances of Jesus on the first day of the week after he dies. So he dies on Friday and then he rises on Sunday morning. And when he does, he appears to, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions at least six individuals or groups that Jesus appears to. So he appears to Cephas, another name for Peter. He appears to the 12 together as a group. He appears to 500 brothers and sisters at once. He appears to James, Jesus' brother. You know, here again, you know, there's the double theory, the theory that Jesus, you know, we're going to talk about some of these. The idea that Jesus was swapped out for somebody else, you know. Um, this is Jesus here. Um, Jesus, James' own brother knows, James knows who his brother is. Um, he appears to all of the apostles, that is those outside of just the 12. That's what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. He also appears to the apostle Paul. So the apostle Paul uh, sees Jesus uh, after he dies. And again, remember who Paul is. Paul's a persecutor. Paul's an enemy of the, of the Christian people. He's not a friend of the Christian people. Nor is he inclined to believe that any of this hokum is actually true. Since yes. We're talking about the life of Jesus. You left a gap. Yeah. Between his death on Friday at three and, and the, the ascent. resurrection. Mm-hmm. For the sake of the <clears throat> us, what happened during that interval? Do uh, you mean specifically with Jesus? Yes. Um, Jesus is in Abraham's bosom. He's experiencing the comfort of paradise. Right, that's what he says to the thief. He says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So he has, when he dies, he says, it is finished, right? It's not like time for stage two of my suffering. I'm going to go to hell. Uh, he specifically says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Wherever this guy is, where he's supposed to be comforted to know, he's like, I'll be there with you today. Why does the uh, creed say that he went to hell? It says he descended into hell. There are, oh, I'm not, I don't even have the number of positions on what that phrase actually means. But it's more than four different positions on what it means for Jesus to descend into hell. Um, historically, there have been people who believed in some kind of a satanic deliverance where Jesus' soul gets taken down and then he 
uh, breaks the bonds of Satan in hell and then escapes. Uh, there are, and I'm not sure how prevalent that view is. Um, I think the majority view in church history is not that he actually goes to hell, is burning in fire, and, you know, suffering the, the pains of hell. But rather, the pains of hell are suffered on the cross. That's the, the view that I've heard articulated. It's my preferred understanding of it. I think it makes the most sense of the text. I think it becomes very difficult to understand what he says to the thief on the cross once you start bringing in an atonement there or something like that that takes place afterwards in hell. So the only thing <clears throat> you're saying that he experienced was after he died, being in the bosom of Abraham? Yes. And that's, yeah. what, that's yeah. all he did? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to be comprehensive and say I know everything Jesus did for the three days in which he's lying in the grave. But I think he's resting. I think he's resting. He's in paradise. Hmm. Proclaiming he's proclaiming victory. He's, uh, he's victorious. Um, but I will also say this is an area for, that's ripe for study, personal study, because I would look at what Herman Bovink says. I think Herman Bovink gives the best explanation of it because he says, look, on the cross, there is no greater pressure or agony placed upon Christ than in that moment. And so what Bovink basically says is hell is there with him on the cross. The cross is what we deserve, and hell is what we deserve, and that means that on the cross, Jesus is experiencing all the sufferings, all the pains of hell. And the separation of what the Father at that moment is? And the separation, whatever it means for Jesus to be separate from the Father, to, to miss the Father, to have him turn his face away, whatever that means, that's where he experiences it, and that's where we're talking about. So the descent into hell takes place on the cross. Um, so... There's, we could do more on that. We could talk more about that, but it's a good question. It's a f- totally fair question. Um, so here is the thing. When we talk about the resurrection, we are talking about something that has very high stakes because, you know, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 14 to 19. He talks about how he says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then our preaching's in vain, our faith's in vain. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. We have hope only in this life if Jesus hasn't been raised. That's not his argument for the resurrection. It's his argument for the stakes. It's his argument for why this is really important. It's, it's, it's Paul explaining that all of Christianity rests upon this capstone of the resurrection. And all of Christianity crumbles if this crumbles. And so Paul is really just making the resurrection central to the gospel that he preaches. And so because of that, here's what happens. Christianity is, experiences a lot of attempts to explain it away, explain away the resurrection, give some explanation for how things later end up working out. A few theories for the, for the resurrection. How did this possibly happen? One theory is the swoon theory. The idea of the swoon theory is Jesus didn't die on the cross. Instead, he suffered. He was executed. He suffered very painfully. He pretended to die or he fainted. Uh, the soldiers assumed that he was dead and they placed him in the tomb alive. The cool air of the tomb revived him. Perhaps he started to feel chilly and then he woke from his slumber, got up, walked around on his injured feet and tried to convince people that he had risen from the dead. That's, that, is the, that is a swim theory. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's my critique. It's unbelievable. Um, Romans are experts at killing. If you want someone dead... Their slogan, if you want someone dead, 
Call the Romans. That was, it's on the side of all their vans when they drive them around town. This is their whole thing. We can't do very many good things, but we can kill for you. And that's the Romans. So what do they do? They think he's dead. He's not breathing any longer. Hey, when, you, when you're crucified, you, you die by asphyxiation, right? Your, your arms are pulled up. Your lungs can't expand. And he hangs there uh, long enough that he ends up suffocating to death. Now, the Roman soldiers observe that he appears to have died earlier than they expected. And so what do they do to make sure that he's dead? They stick the spear in his side and out comes blood and water. Uh, they seem to have separated, uh, which is something that apparently happens with the, um, the lungs. The lungs fill with fluid, and so you have the fluid around the heart. I don't know. Some, some doctor needs to get up here and explain this part. But, <laughs> but Jesus is sufficiently dead as far as the Romans are concerned. And so he dies. He is taken down from the cross. And they turn his body over to Joseph and they lay him in the tomb. So really, it's just not plausible that he survives being flagellated, whipped, bleeds to death, stabbed in the side, and publicly dies in front of everybody. It's, it's, it's inconceivable that he didn't actually die. Uh, the Muslims believe that, that he was switched with a double. And there's no evidence for that. I don't know how you would do it. I don't know how the doubling, how, how it happens. They may believe it's a supernatural switching, like where somebody that looks like Jesus goes up there instead. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to remember exactly because I, yeah, I, I, I might have it wrong. What were you going to ask something? I was just saying the double is actually on the cross. Jesus was never actually up there or the double was just switched out after? The double's on the cross. Somebody's dying, but it's not Jesus. And it's because Muslims have a respect for Jesus, right? They're, they're, they're like a segment of Christianity in a weird sense because they believe he's a prophet. Uh, they have some respect for Jesus. They believe in Moses. They, um, they don't believe the New Testament documents. They think they're wrong or they think that they're corrupted. But they're trying to hold this respect for Jesus in tandem with their belief that God is not a trinity. He's not three in one. Yeah, Raj. Yeah, so they, they do believe that uh, he was taken up to heaven and the devil was killed. Mm -hmm. And then they also do believe that he will be the first to return in the end times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, a Muslim is going to say, we don't hate Jesus. You know, we don't have a problem with Jesus. But, you know, in comparison with what we testify about Jesus, they have the very, he's just a prophet. He's just a prophet. Um, so there's the, the wrong tomb theory. Is, uh, so that's the swoon theory. There's the wrong tomb theory, right? The theory is the women have the wrong tomb. The, the, the tomb is empty. They prematurely declare the resurrection. In reality, they just went to the wrong one. Um, my critique for that is that it's unreasonable. This is a private garden tomb. This is not a row of tombs where, you know, you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you went to number one instead of number seven because the line was blurry or something like that. No, it's... It's not like that at all. Um, the Synoptic Gospels note the, the, these, the women saw the location of the tomb, where it was buried. Joseph of Arimathea would have been familiar with where his own tomb was. Um, Peter and John run to the tomb. They confirm the resurrection. Very hard to believe that everybody involved all gets the tomb wrong and they're willing to die for it. Um, and besides that, here's the reality. In this scenario, they could have just produced the body. They could have been like, oh, actually, he's over here. You guys are so crazy. We're going to pull him out and show you and unwrap him and show you that this is Jesus. 
and they could have shut everybody up. And instead, they can't stop it because there's no body. There's no producing a body. He's just not there. The, the theft theory, that's actually the oldest theory because it takes, it's there in Matthew 28, 11. Um, this is the first explanation Jesus' enemies present. They say, let's just tell everybody that his disciples stole the body. Uh, obviously, whenever somebody comes up with a plan to hide something, it makes it re- look really bad, right? The facts are not on your side when you, when you have to do something sneaky like this. And that's exactly right. They can't produce the body. They can't find a body anywhere in Jerusalem, even though they undertake, they undertake this with great effort. Uh, again, this sort of suffers from the same problem as the, the wrong tomb theory. You again have an opportunity to produce a body, and that, it doesn't happen. Also, you still don't explain the appearances after his death. So you've got a one-two problem there. You've got these people who are still willing to die. They swear they saw him. So even if the body was stolen, then you have a bunch of crazy people who are totally ready to die, even though they know he's, he's dead. Um, then you have the legend theory. Uh, the legend theory, probably the most popular rationalistic theory today. I have to be honest, with 2,000 years passing, it's much easier for modern people to imagine this is true. This is more plausible to a modern person, the idea that this is all legend. Um, what is the, what's the idea of the legend theory? The, the gospel narratives are legendary developments of early visionary experiences. The disciples must have started having visions of Jesus, and they persuaded each other that the visions weren't just visions. Um, eventually, the church starts to teach that this wasn't just a spiritual resurrection, but an actual, literal, physical resurrection. Um, I would also say, I think the way that the legend theory works itself out modern-wise, most popular version of it is actually sort of the Da Vinci Code theory version of it, where you have this uh, confluence of churches, they come together, and they all sort of corporately make a decision that we're going to edit the historical record, we are going to change it so that it does in fact appear, appear that Jesus rose from the dead. This is sort of the conspiracy theory version of it. Um, the idea that the legend grows and it forms until finally it becomes what it is. Um, so my, my critique is this. The distance of time in history actually makes this theory seem more feasible to some people. I think modern people find it easy to just vaguely imagine that ancient people are this gullible, that they are this silly. Um, but it's a necessary theory. This is a necessary theory if you want to explain the rise of Christianity. If you want to explain the rise of Christianity, you have to. It's like the theory of evolution, right? Life exists. It must have been here. God isn't real. So I need an answer, right? I have to have a solution. I'm backed into a corner. Even if the answer is wacky or doesn't have evidence or even if there's no, no evidence for this idea, there must be one. And so even if it does take a wacky answer... It's still possible because here we are and we know there's no God, right? That's how it has to be approached. And so um, it becomes difficult to critique the legend theory because it claims that all resurrection narratives are, uh, and confessions are untrustworthy. So the only way to actually respond to this view is to look at the historical evidence, see if it's reasonable. Um, just a moment here. Let me see something. Um, <laughs> That's interesting. So I sat down this morning and I really changed a lot of my notes. Um, and they didn't upload in the cloud. So you guys are getting my old version. Yeah. So 
Well, it's actually the hardest thing is actually keeping your thoughts straight. That's actually the, if any of you have ever done public speaking, then you know the hardest thing is not repeating yourself. Um, so let me see. I'm just, I'm looking. Okay, so historical evidence. What do we know? Oh, man, dang. Whoa, whoa. Update, update. No, I've, I've got, I think I've got what we need. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Hold on. I need this. Let's talk about wine. That actually happened with my sermon notes today. I actually updated my sermon notes, and they, they weren't they weren't updated. So you guys got an older version of oh, that too. No. I don't trust you, Microsoft. Nobody here works for Microsoft, right? I don't trust you, Microsoft. You did something to OneDrive. I don't know. Um, so Jesus is crucified around 30 AD. Honestly, credible scholars today don't don't question that. And when I say credible scholars, that's not me like explaining away these perfectly. Uh, skilled historians. I mean, there are really not. I mean, even the Jesus Seminar with their wacky beliefs about Jesus. I'm going to call them wacky because I think they are. Uh, John Dominic Crossan believes Jesus was crucified. So even even the most ardent people who are very opposed to the idea of the resurrection believe Jesus was crucified. It's not really a legitimate thing to question. Um, Jesus is buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Um, Unlikely the church would create a story with a hero as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, by the way. So you remember, you're talking about, if you're talking about a constructed narrative, you're talking about a narrative that everybody's making and they're all making choices along the way. And instead of making their people the hero, they seem to always be making the other people the hero. Um, and I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. The tomb gets discovered empty on the third day by whom? Amen. By the women. Uh, I usually don't quote James Dunn very often, but I will on historical Jesus stuff. So listen to James Dunn. He says, as it is well known in Middle Eastern society of the time, women were not regarded as reliable witnesses. A woman's testimony in court was heavily discounted. And any report that Mary had formerly been demon possessed would hardly add credibility to any story attributed to her in particular. Why then attribute such testimony to women unless that was what was remembered as being the case? In contrast, can it be seriously argued that such a story would be contrived in the cities or village communities of first century Palestine, a story which would have to stand up before public incredulity and prejudice? The inclusion of this detail adds credibility to the report. The inclusion of women as the discoverers of the body of Jesus adds credibility. Um, You think about it. If the whole narrative is perfect... In terms of what everybody's going to want and what everybody's going to expect, that at least gives you a reason to squint. You know, this is just too perfect. And instead, it's odd, right? Uh, it would be odd to preach the gospel in Jerusalem so willingly and say that Jesus has risen from the dead when his body could be found and produced, right? They're not afraid to talk about it, and they're not afraid to stake their lives on it, even though even now you could still go find the body, if only you could find the body. Um, You have credible witnesses that see Jesus alive. I won't repeat them, but Paul is rattling off uh, a long list of people that even now you could find them. You could interview them. You could talk to them. When he's writing this list in 1 Corinthians, you're probably talking about 15 years after the resurrection. You're not talking about, about, you're not talking about a century later where everybody's dead and now you can talk about everybody as if nobody knows what they're talking about. 
um, you have the evidence of the transformed lives of the disciples, right? These guys who go from being uneducated, scared men, hiding in a room, to suddenly becoming these bold preachers who are not afraid of whatever you can do to them. It becomes very difficult because, look, they're scared all the way. They're afraid all the way. After he dies, they hide in a room together. Um, and I actually would argue this. I would actually argue that the more insurmountable challenge is explaining world history if the physical resurrection didn't take place. It becomes more difficult to explain how world history works out the way that it does without a resurrection. The change that these uneducated Jewish men experience, their willingness to upend Jewish, Jewish society of their day, uh, their willingness to include Gentiles when that would have been absolutely impossible before, uh, a decision that is inexplicable apart from God's divine activity and telling them, make sure you include Gentiles. Um, their willingness to die for this message, knowing for sure that Jesus rose, right? People die all the time for stuff. They may be, well, I don't know if they die all the time, but people die for things they don't know. People die for things they wouldn't know, but they really believe strongly in. These guys are in the situation where they know. They know whether he rose. They know whether he rose. Uh, They are the witnesses. Um, The explosion of Christianity from this group of 12 men, apart from the resurrection, apart from the sending of the Holy Spirit, is almost impossible to explain. Um, Explaining all of these things in exclusively psychological, rationalistic terms is actually the harder thing to do. It actually is harder and more insurmountable to explain all of this. Um, You know, I like to put it this way. The shortest distance between these two points, the death of Jesus and the world we know today, is the resurrection. That's the shortest distance between two points. You know what's the longest distance? Uh, The Jesus... (laughs) Wrong tomb or swim theory. And then you've still got all the other problems that come with it trying to explain in terms of world history how we get to a place where a majority of human beings on planet Earth or at least the largest group of people are people who believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, I, can, I, I think the resurrection itself is a simplistic explanation for how we get there. And a convoluted theory is involved if you want to get from there all the way to today. If you're talking about there being a universe with no God and no resurrection. Um, Historical study can do a few things for us, but it can make very few things absolutely certain. So if you want absolute certainty, history's not going to do it for you. Did Caesar cross the Rubicon? Did Alexander the Great die in Babylon? Uh, Did Shakespeare write Hamlet? I mean, you find movies where they think that he didn't, right? <laughs> Did terrorists destroy the Twin Towers on 9-11? You can, you can always find someone who will argue contrary to conventional historical study. You can always find it. There's always one person in the room who is the determined contrarian and who will find a way to overturn someone else's historical conclusions. That's not true. <clears throat> <laughs> I stand corrected. Um... Here's where I'm going with this. A naturalist can tell the most fanciful story necessary in order to avoid the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. If he's determined to not believe in the resurrection, he will find a way. People always find a way. But it involves the crazy guy chart, right? Have you ever seen that in the movies where they got all the pictures and then the red string running between all of them? And, and everybody walks in the room and they go, oh, no, Steve, your life is falling apart. You know, that's what it takes to find a way to explain the world we know without the resurrection. Um, 
by the way, but here's what I was saying, though. Historical study on its own can't prove that something happened. It can't prove, I'm going to use a fancy word, in an epistemological sense, in a knowledge sense. It can't prove it to the 100% point that's going to satisfy every person that sees the information. It can't do that. And so in the case of the resurrection, history cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. Here's what the study of history can do. At least three things. It can, it can prove how early the reports of the resurrection began. Study of history can prove how widespread the reports of the resurrection were. And study of history can prove whether such claims can be explained by cultural expectations or precedents. And so in all of these cases, you study history and what you find is that all of this comes about in a situation where people wouldn't expect it to happen. Uh, found by the people you wouldn't expect to find it. And then by people that you wouldn't, put, wouldn't expect to be the ones to be preaching it. Um, you find that the resurrection reports spread widely early in a time when it would be easy to shut it down and when people would be the most incredulous. You're going to believe this. You would want to find out for yourself. And people did. Um, you also find by studying history that these reports start early and they spread and they go all over the world. So uh, a bare historical study can yield at least three conclusions about the resurrection. First, that the tomb was empty shortly after his, his crucifixion. It can tell us that from the very beginning, significant numbers of men and women claim to have seen Jesus alive after he was publicly killed. And it can tell us that large numbers of key eyewitnesses endured ill treatment and martyrdom rather than give up the claim that they had seen the risen Jesus. Those things you can prove from history. Do those things prove to you that the resurrection happened? Well, that's going to be different for every person. Every person's persuasion is going to be different. Um, what I want to say, though, is this. Evidence has a place for Christians, but it actually we have to actually be thoughtful about what its place is. So, and, and I hate this, but I'm going to run out of time because we talked about wine. Uh, <laughs> What I want to do is I want to temper everything that I'm saying here by talking about the place of evidence. I want to, and so I, I think I'll just push it to next week because what I'll talk about is the place of evidence. I'm going to give you an outline of what I'm going to say and then I'll go into it. But I want you to know that evidence does have a persuasive power. Uh, evidence does have a way of showing us what our hearts are like and showing us why it is that we would resist something that's been presented to us. It has a way of convicting us. It has a way of exposing our presuppositions. The way that like we receive something from somebody. If, if I tell you uh, I levitated yesterday, depending on what you believe about the world, you're either going to have a really hard time believing it or just a little bit of hard time believing it, right? <laughs> because we all carry our own presuppositions about whether such a thing is possible or not. Um, uh, and also um, evidence is not sufficient to change the heart. And that's one of the things that's really important for me to get to, and I don't want to rush past it. So I also don't want you guys thinking that the whole reason why we believe in the resurrection is because of somebody's historical study, because that's not sufficient. That's not sufficient to prove the resurrection. All it can do is um, confirm for us what we already know, and it can also uh, confront us with problems with our worldview if we don't believe it and we find ourselves twisting ourselves into to pretzels trying to explain it away. So anyway, when we, come back next, when we come back next Sunday, I'll talk more about where evidence belongs in all of this. But originally it was going to be part of this, but we'll just push it off. How's that sound? Um, let me pray for us, and then I'm sure we'll have lots of good conversations afterwards about wine. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you.
thank you for your son, Jesus, who willingly, for the joy set before him, walked to the cross. He could have called legions of angels to come and save him. He could have escaped the suffering. He had the right. He had the power. He could have done it. And yet he remained and he suffered and died for us. We thank you for Jesus explaining his death for us so that we know that his death was not just meaningless suffering by another Jewish person in a little corner of the world, but he let us know that he loves his people. And because of that, he willingly walked to the cross and laid his life down for us. We praise you, O God, that your son Jesus loves us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.